I want to do something just a little bit different today. Um, as opposed to just offering a presentation, we're just going to turn the slides off this morning. And uh, instead of standing up here on the stage and preaching at you, I want to kind of come down and I just want to talk with you about some things this morning. Though, I'm sure by the time we're done, it'll still sound a little bit like preaching. But there's some things that uh, that I think we need to just kind of have a little family talk about. Eight years ago, I watched the World Trade Towers fall. You remember where you were when that happened, Don? Jim, you remember where you were? I was on my way to my office. I had left the early bird cafe. I had a breakfast panini in my stomach, a cup of coffee in my hand, the wind coming through the windows, blowing through my hair that I had back then, and the CD player blaring in my ear. And then the phone rang in my pocket. And a friend of mine asked, have you heard? A plane flew into the World Trade Tower. And I remember thinking, oh, no. Somebody has messed up bad. Somebody's going to be in big, big trouble. But before I even got to my office, I received another call from that same friend, and he said the second tower has been hit. And I remember thinking, oh, no. This wasn't an accident. And I spent the rest of that day, as did many of you, in horror and even fear. And I went back and forth from watching the television to listening to the radio, trying to find the latest news about what was going on. I saw the buildings collapse. I heard about the attack on the Pentagon. And I heard about our one victory that day. United Flight 93 downed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, instead of making it to a target, most likely in Washington, D.C. When the death toll was tallied for that day, 2,974 victims had died. Nine eleven changed us as a nation. At the time, we were living in southeast Texas, which is a petrochemical center. We lived less than three miles from a refinery, and I remember the weeks after that attack took place, the rumors going around that because of the oil refineries and the chemical refineries, we would be a prime target for an attack. I was scared for my family. Tessa was almost four, just turned four. Ethan was almost two. I was scared for me. But I also remember listening to President Bush talk about the attacks following that day. And I remember as he led us to understand that this was not just some random attack of terror. Over and again, he emphasized, this is war. It's a war like we've never heard or seen before. It's a war with an elusive and hard-to-define enemy. It's a war that was going to take unprecedented strategies to try to win. 
It was a war that while having some decisive victories and perhaps even some defeats, it's probably going to last for the rest of our lives. Because the enemy is often hard to spot, hiding among us, we go through some extreme measures to try to maintain safety. And sometimes those measures are uncomfortable. How often do we complain when the trip through the security at the airport takes longer than the flight itself? And yet, if we're going to win this war, we've got to be on our guard. The fall of the World Trade Center changed our nation. That was eight years ago. Eight days ago, I witnessed an even greater fall. A fall that has far greater ramifications than what happened on 9-11. I witnessed a fall that doesn't necessarily translate into the loss of life, but the loss of souls. And the death toll from this fall is incalculable. We'll never know. How many souls are going to be lost because of this fall? I remember exactly where I was when I first heard about Jody Lust, gospel preacher from Auburn, Kentucky. Marita and I were both in the schoolroom at our house. I was taking a break from balancing the checkbook and working on our September budget while she checked her email. And I just heard her say, Oh, no. And she read an email to me about the mysterious disappearance of a gospel preacher up in Kentucky. And I remember thinking, oh, I hope this doesn't turn out to be something bad on his part. And then I rebuked myself for being so cynical and immediately started calling folks to let them know to start praying. And I prayed off and on on Saturday. And I remember Saturday night when one of the brothers that I had called and told about this situation called me back and his words were, Edwin, I found something really bad. And he directed me via Google to the updated news story to find out that the search for the missing preacher had turned into a manhunt for a fallen Christian charged with statutory rape of a 13-year-old girl. And that moment will be etched in my mind forever. Just like Pearl Harbor and the assassination of John F. Kennedy for many of you. Just like the moment that I heard about the explosion of the shuttle Challenger back in 1986. And just like the moment that I heard about the attack on the World Trade Center. I'll never forget that. was a wake-up call for us as a nation. 9-11 was a warning that we were at war. A war that most of us didn't even know was going on. 
9.5 should be a wake-up call for us. A warning for us as a congregation. As God's people. Can you imagine how silly and ridiculous it might have been had following 9-11 if George Bush had made his State of the Union address and if he had said something along the lines of, the World Trade Center collapse was just a freak attack. It was just a weird thing. We don't know how it happened. We don't know why it happened. We're certain it won't ever happen again. And so really, let's just ignore it. Let's just sweep it under the rug. We don't want to talk about it. Let's just all move on with our lives and just try to forget that it ever happened. And yet that's exactly what some of us want to do with 9-5. Oh, Jody Lustman is just a weird, freak, perverted thing. We don't know how anything like that could happen. We're certain it'll never happen here. Let's just try to put it under the rug. Let's just try to forget about it. Let's not talk about it. Let's just move on with our lives and try to pretend like nothing happened. I think we need to understand that that would be just as silly and ridiculous and dangerous a response. Guys, we're not just playing church here. We are at war. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 11 and 12 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're at war. We're at war with the devil. We're at war with rulers, with authorities, with cosmic powers of darkness, with evil forces, excuse me, spiritual forces of evil. They will stop at nothing. They will bar no holds. Their one desire is to drag each and every one of us down into the pits of hell. You thought Hitler and his Nazi regime was bad? You think Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda are wicked and evil? It's nothing like who we're fighting against. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know who that someone is, Gordon? Someone's you. Phil, do you know who that someone is? It's your wife. Your kids. Your grandkids. Chris, do you know who that someone is? It's you. That's who Satan wants. He doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care where you've been. He doesn't care what you've done. He is stalking. He is prowling. He is looking for someone to devour. And he'll take anyone he can get a hold of. 
we have got to understand we are at war. All the way back in the book of Daniel, we get an interesting glimpse at the fact that there is something that's going on behind all of this that we see. We see what plays out on the stage of the world. We see it in politics among nations. We see it in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our churches. But here in the book of Daniel in chapter 10, Daniel gets to see a glimpse, and through Daniel we get to see a glimpse that there's something bigger going on. There is a war going on, a spiritual battle going on between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Daniel chapter 10, the Israelites have been in captivity and Daniel has read the prophecies of Jeremiah about their release. And he's been praying. And now in verse 10 of Daniel 10, it says, Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the king of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. Spiritual being. Some suggest it might even be Jesus himself. Others believe it's an angel. Comes to Daniel and says, look at what's going on behind this. This is not a man who's actually been uh, fighting with the king of Persia, the physical king. This is talking about a spiritual battle that's taking place behind him. And Michael, the prince of the people of Israel, is the only one that's been helping the spiritual being in this battle. And it says in verse 18 again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against thee, except Michael, your prince. Here is a battle that's going on. We need to understand and look beyond just what we can see with our eyes and understand that we are part of a war, and we are part of a greater war than we can even imagine. Spiritual battle of good and evil. In the garden... When Satan tempted Eve to take of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then tempted Adam through Eve, and they partook, the battle began. When Cain killed Abel, it continued. When the heart of men were only evil continually, and God sent the flood, the battle was waged. When Noah gave in to drunkenness, when Abraham lied, when Moses took the glory for himself, when David committed immorality with Bathsheba, the battle was going on. When Judas betrayed Christ, when Peter denied Christ, when Demas forsook Paul because of the love of this world, when Diotrephes rejected the apostles because he wanted the preeminence, the battle was going on. 
And we need to understand that the battle is still going on today. I've been preaching the gospel full-time for about 15 years, and I can't even count the number of preachers and elders that I've heard of that have fallen due to adultery. I don't even remember all the families that I know that have dissolved and fallen apart for one reason or another. Money, greed, sexual immorality, selfishness. The Christians that I know who have been taken to jail for theft, drugs, Just this week, I heard about a preacher up north. We hadn't heard about this one down here, but he's going to go to jail because of trafficking and child pornography. heard about an elder in another congregation that just in the last month has abandoned his family to go off with another woman. Art Adams, who's a gospel preacher and also a professional counselor that works specifically with folks who are dealing with addictions, goes around to different churches and does seminars on on how churches can deal with addiction in their midst. I talked to him a while back. And anecdotally, he told me that as he's gone around and as he's told people in various churches, it's been his finding that one in four men among us is struggling with pornography. We are at war. And a good way to get killed is to pretend like we're not. And as we consider this war, we need to understand who our enemy is. Look in Ephesians chapter 6 again. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul said, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You see that? The enemy is not the people. Rather, we need to stand against the schemes of the devil. Satan is the enemy. Not the people. In fact, notice 2 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning at verse 24 is, Paul is writing to Timothy and telling him what the Lord's servant's job is. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by Him to do His will. See what this says about the people? Sinners aren't the enemy. Sinners are Satan's victims, his captives, his prisoners, if you will. Satan's the enemy. Sin is the enemy. His evil hordes of wickedness that will do anything to try to get us to stumble and fall and follow after the devil's will, that is the enemy. 
sinners are the prisoners of war. And they don't need our judgment and condemnation. They need our help. Just like we need help. Now, having said that, let me explain a couple things. Number one, our sins, no matter how great or small, are our responsibility. Nobody, whether they're standing in a court of man's law or in a court of God's law at the final judgment, is going to be able to sit there and say, it's not my fault, the devil made me do it. We're responsible. And I also want to make sure that we understand that when our sins come to the level of a crime, that God has established an authority to punish that. Romans 13 demonstrates it. And if we have done something worthy of punishment, even if that punishment is death, we need to be like Paul that understood, if I've done anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. Repentance and forgiveness from God does not mean that we will not be judged by man's law. God's established it to do that. Repentance means that I'll be willing to accept that. But what we need to understand is that is not our job as the church to meet out. Our job is to help sinners overcome sin. And there are false teaching churches, and there are false teaching preachers, and there are false teachers that, that go around and, and teach error, and they, they mimic truth, and they come close to truth, but they fall short of truth, and they give people false hope. And yes, as Titus chapter 1 and verse 9 says, we need to rebuke and correct and bring them back, but we need to understand they are not the enemy. Satan's the enemy. And yes, there are those who have sinned so greatly as to damage and maim and kill spiritually. And as Luke 17.3 says, it is our job to rebuke those who sin. And as 1 Corinthians 5 demonstrates, it is our job to discipline those among us who are impenitent. But they are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. And there are, as Acts chapter 20 points out, wolves in sheep's clothing who will come in among us and, and twist the truth and turn folks away. As 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20 demonstrates, our job is to rebuke those who will not turn from sin. Rebuke them in front of all. But they are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. And the reason we need to understand that is because we will not know how to fight this battle. We continue to think that it's the people around us that are the enemy. We will be fighting the wrong people, having the wrong attitude. We continue to think that it's the people around us that are the enemy. Satan is the enemy. And if you want to consider an illustration, it's like the thing that we've heard about Stockholm Syndrome. Maybe we can look at, at those who are, are committing the wickedness as, as those who have been with the enemy so long that their allegiance has turned to them. And they're wrong for that, and they'll be judged if they don't stop. And I understand that. But our job is to help them be freed from that.
at the second reason why we have to be concerned about knowing who the enemy is. Is as long as we continue to think that false teachers, fallen brethren, and other flawed folks are the enemy, we'll continue to think that we can win the war on our own. Because if the false teacher down the road is the enemy, if the fallen brother who's committing sin, if the wolf in sheep's clothing is the problem, then all I need is my logic with the Scripture and my obedience, and I can take care of them. But our enemy is greater than that. Much greater. We can't beat our enemy. I can't go to church enough to defeat the enemy. I can't take the Lord's Supper enough to beat the enemy. I can't make enough right choices to beat our enemy. We just can't do it. And if we do not come to grips with our poverty of spirit, our powerlessness and our weakness, we're going to end up losing our souls. Because Satan is the enemy. And if we're not careful, if we don't realize who the enemy is, we will end up being victims as well. There's a lot of sad things about this last week. And I know a lot of us have a lot of different perspectives, but I have to tell you, for me, the saddest thing, and, and, and I tell you, this is a strong statement because there just is some real sadness. When I think about the damage done to the little girl and to the church in, in Auburn and to Jody's family and to a lot of sadness. But for me, the saddest thing is knowing how Satan is going to use that. Because there are non-Christians that have heard about this. And they're saying, that's what a Christian does. Why do I need Jesus? I'm doing better than that on my own. I found a blog from California last night, an atheist, and that's essentially what he said. found out about this story. That's what he said. You know, those... Stupid Christians. And then I'm saddened by how Satan is going to use this among Christians. Because there are Christians who are saying, I know I've done some bad things, but at least I've never done that. And I'll never, ever do that. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12 doesn't apply here. I'm not sure where it applies. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We should not allow our brother's great sin to make us feel comfortable about our lesser sin. And to glory in our power, but rather to recognize the power sin can have, even in our lives. Romans 7, I'm not going to read it again for sake of time. We read it in our scripture reading. But here's Paul, a Pharisee before a Christian, an apostle afterwards, and he says that coveting took over. 
He said he didn't do the things that he wanted to do, the things that he knew were right. He kept doing the things that he didn't want to do. Why? Because that is how powerful sin was. If sin was that powerful for him, what about us? What's happened with Jody is a catastrophic tragedy. The damage is unable to be measured. What these passages say is if we sit in our arrogance and think that it will never happen to us, we may end up letting our guard down and we may be next. But there's another side of this, the recognition that we need to understand about how we can fall victim. Because, and and we might call this the tale of two Pharisees, in Luke chapter 7, Beginning in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. He went into the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, and she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Excuse me. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. After all this is done, in verse 47, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, Simon, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven me. Then in Luke chapter 18, Verse 9, Luke 18 and verse 9, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here the Pharisees trusted in their own righteousness, that they were righteous. And they looked at these sinners. A a, a woman from the city who's a sinner, most people believe that means she's a prostitute. Clearly, whatever she was doing was... Obvious to all. And here was this tax collector, considered by Jews to be the scum of the earth, a traitor to their God and to their people. And the Pharisees sat there and they said, at least I haven't done what they've done, and I never will. And you know, they might be right. They might be right. It may be that they would never ever do those things, but it didn't matter because Satan already had them. You see, Satan didn't have to push them to that awful depth. He already had their soul. As they sat there in their arrogance and trusting in their own righteousness and their own power, and it may be for us that we will never, ever do anything that awful, and I pray that that's true, that we won't ever do that. But Satan may not have to push us that far to have us in his back pocket. In fact, he may be afraid to push us that far because if he does, we might be broken and have the humility that we need to actually go to Jesus and get the salvation. 
And if we stand there in our own arrogance and the trusting of our own power and our own righteousness and, and our religious rituals and the things that we haven't done and the things that we have done, Satan's already got it. And we need to come to grips with the reality of Romans chapter 3. We often just jump down to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 and say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we miss what it says beginning in verse 9. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul, quoting from the Psalms and from Isaiah, says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Listen to what he says about sinners. Their throat is an open grave. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. They're swift to shed blood. There's no way of peace that they know. And here's the problem. We have a tendency to look at this passage and say, well, I've not ever been that bad. I guess if I've not been that bad, I'm not really a sinner. God is not saying that you become a sinner when you become that bad. God is saying when you're a sinner, this is how He sees us. And we need to understand that the revulsion... The anger, the sadness that we feel towards this awful, hideous, heinous sin is exactly how God views all of our sins. Our pride, our arrogance, our lying, our gossip, our slander, our lust, pornography, stealing, lack of forgiveness, anger, outbursts of wrath, I should say, hatred. That's how God sees it. The way we feel about this sin is how God feels about our sins, too. That should cause us to be humble. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So far, what I've shared is kind of bleak. And I hope you feel a little bit bleak about it. I, I hope that I hope that you have some of that same feeling about all this spiritually that you had about September 11th. I hope you have a healthy fear for our enemy. I hope you have a healthy respect for your own weakness and powerlessness and inability to control these things in the face of the enemy if you give over to him. I hope you have a little bit of fear. But this is where our analogy kind of stops. Because you see, when it comes to the war on terror, we have no idea what's going to happen in the future on that. You know, it may be that radical Islamist jihadists take over our nation and destroy our nation as we know it. That may be what happens. I, I don't know. But I tell you what, in our war, I do know what happens. In our war, God wins. 
God wins this war. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, when Paul cried out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? He had an answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, from the very beginning, when the war began, God pronounced to the serpent, you'll bruise the seed of the woman's heel, but he'll bruise your head. In Revelation chapter 19, and while I recognize that this passage likely refers to a specific battle in this war, we still can't help but see the victory. In Revelation 19 and verse 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And then in verse 7 of chapter 20, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, God wins. And so the question for us is not who's going to win this war. The question is, how do we stay on the winning side every day? Satan wants to kill us. He wants to deceive us. He wants to destroy us. And he'll do anything he can. But God beats him. We can't beat him. God will. So the question is, how do we stay on God's side? We have to stay connected to God. We have to stay connected to Jesus. We have to stay connected to the Spirit. And when we do, we'll be able to cry out with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, Thanks be to our God who has given us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Not through us, not through our strength, not because we're amazing, not because we're awesome, but through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this is going to mean we have to take some extreme measures. Half measures avail nothing in this war. As Matthew 6 and verse 33 says, we have to seek first His kingdom and righteousness. 
Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 says, we've got to learn to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not hunger and thirst for forgiveness. We'll need forgiveness to get righteousness. What we need to hunger and thirst for is righteousness. We need to want that more than anything else. As Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 and 30 says, we've got to learn to cut off everything that takes us away from God, no matter how painful it is to us. As Galatians 2.20 says, we've got to learn to crucify ourselves with Christ, allowing Him to live, abandoning ourselves to Him, surrendering ourselves to His will. As 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, we've got to let God chisel away at everything in us that does not reflect Him as He refines us with the fiery trials of this life. We've got to improve our culture as a congregation and change our motivation. Why are we here this morning? We're not here because churches get together on Sunday. I mean, if we are, that's a bad problem. We need to be here because we're at war. Why do we do what we do? Prayer, Bible study, Assemblies, classes, gospel meetings, small groups, hospitality. All those things are not checklists because, oh, now we're Christians. We've got some rules we've got to follow. Those are the things that get us into the battle, that make us stand strong by the might of God. Those are the things that strengthen us in the Lord's power. Those are the things that help us overcome. We are at war and we're going to lose if all we're doing is playing church. If all we're doing is trying to do some neat, cool things that churches do, and maybe we'll get some more people here, we're going to lose. And we'll meet together every Sunday as a prelude to an eternity in hell because we have not made winning this war a priority. We've got to see ourselves not just as a local congregation, but as a battalion of God's army that is pulling together, strengthening one another, lifting one another up, holding one another accountable, encouraging one another, comforting one another when we fall. Because we are at war. And after this last week, we ought never be the same. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God in heaven, we love you. We thank you for loving us. You are an awesome God. And we need you so much. Help us to realize our need. Help us to hunger and thirst for connection with you. We pray that we would walk in your presence. That we would understand your nearness. That we would reach out and place our hand in yours. Submitting to your word. Submitting to your will. Surrendering our lives to you. Just following wherever you lead. Father, every single one of us here sinned this week. Remove from us any arrogance and pride that we might have because we haven't committed some great sins that others have. But humble us to recognize that we've fallen short of your glory. We need your mercy. Please be merciful to us. We're sinners. God, help us to carry this message out to the world so that other sinners can also be saved can be forgiven and can be set free from sin so that we can pursue your righteousness. Especially ask that you be with each of us as parents. 
please protect our children from sinners. And protect them even from our own sin. That they might grow up unhindered by our mistakes and flaws and sins. Be able to surrender to you from the very beginning. Help us as a congregation to recognize the war that is going on. To pull together each one of us as a soldier in your army. That we might fight your battles here in this world. That we would strengthen one another. Lift up our fallen and help them be healed. And we'll press on for the goal of heaven. Thank you so much for that hope. Thank you for loving us, God. We love you so much. Through your Son, whose death demonstrates your love, we pray. Amen. Would you go ahead and pull out your song books, please? Number 359. I know I've gone a little bit longer than usual, and I appreciate your patience. As you turn to number 359, I've got just a couple more verses I want to read. We are at war. And the thing that we need to understand is that if we haven't committed something as awful as Jody did, we can't rest in that. We still need Jesus. If you're not one of God's children, but you're sitting there saying, but at least I've never done that. I'm glad you've not ever done that. But if you're outside of Jesus, you're still lost. The wages of your sin are still death, just as Romans 6.23 says. And as 2 Thessalonians 1 points out, when Jesus returns to be glorified among his saints, you will be cast away to eternal destruction. But I also want you to know that if you have committed something as awful as Jody or worse, That doesn't mean there's no hope for you. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus died while you were weak. Jesus died while you were a sinner. I want you to understand what that verse means. That verse means that when Jesus was on trial and He was looking forward to that cross, and as they laid it out for Him, as they put it on His back, and as He carried it down that Via Della Rosa up to Golgotha's hill, He knew the sin that Jody Lust was going to commit on September 4th and 5th. 
And he went to the cross for Jody anyway. And he knew the sins that you were going to commit. And he went to the cross for you anyway. Don't let his death be in vain for you. Romans 6 and verse 3 says that we are baptized into Christ. We are baptized into his death. Let that death be effective in your life. Let it wash away your sin. Let it set you free so you can be set free to pursue that righteousness you hunger for. If we can help you with that or any spiritual thing that you need this morning, I ask that you please come right now as we stand and sing Victory in Jesus, number 359.